0: Good morning, y'all. Good to see everybody. Uh, My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and um, part of the teaching team and glad that you're uh, here with us as we're starting to wind down this series in the book of Acts. You know, uh, Houston has been in the news a lot lately and I read a story about something that happened in the Houston airport some years ago that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, There was this one particular airline that was getting lots of complaints about how long people were waiting to get their bags. And so they said, okay, gosh, we're getting all these complaints. What do we do? So they decided to hire more staff, more baggage handlers, people who would basically help kind of just accelerate that whole thing once people got the baggage claim. And so they hired these folks, and they got these people working, and they were able to actually get the wait time from the, the time that it took for the people to get from their gate to where they got their bags. They got it down to eight minutes. But the complaints didn't go down at all. And they kind of were going, gosh, what is this? We've hired all these people. We've gotten down to eight minutes. Like, why are we still getting the same number of complaints that we got before? And when they analyzed what was going on, they realized that it took people a minute to walk from the gate to the baggage claim. So that was one minute. And then they waited for seven minutes for their bag. So they said, you know what? This is what we'll do. This, is, this will fix it, is we're going to actually move people to a further away gate and we're gonna route their bags to a further away baggage claim pickup area. And so they, they still kinda kept it at like eight to 10 minutes is how long it took for people to get to the, from the gate to where they got their bags. But instead of walking one minute and waiting for seven, they walked for seven or eight and waited for one. And their, ba- their, cl- their complaints went just down to like zero. Now the lesson of that story is we hate to wait. <laughs> We don't mind walking further, but we don't want to wait, right? Just standing there, sitting there, just waiting. Waiting is one of the most frustrating experiences that all of us have in our lives, right? Some of you um, who are parents of kids in school who aren't able to drive themselves yet, you, you actually architect your whole day or your whole week sometimes around picking up and dropping off in such a way that you are not going to have to wait, Because you know that if you get there at the wrong time, like you're just going to sit there in your car like an idiot and just wait for like 40 minutes. And that's so frustrating. I know for me as a dad, oh man, one of the the things, dads, any of you can relate to this, right? When are we leaving? We're leaving at 11 o'clock. At 11 o'clock, who's in the car? (laughs) Dad, (laughs) right? And mom's going, I wish you would help get the kids in the car. I'm like, I am. I'm turning on the air conditioning, right? And so I Turn on the air conditioning, and what do you do? You wait, right? And you go, what are we waiting for? I don't know, but we're, we wait, right? Some of you, you plan when you go or don't go to Disneyland based on the time of year that, so that you will not have to wait in line as much, right? You, you do this. For me, the worst place, oh, the most frustrating place for me to wait is at the Super Target in Queen Creek Marketplace. Any of you know that that Target? And it's not like the wait there's always bad or anything, but here's why it's so frustrating. They somebody had this brilliant idea to make 25 lanes, checkout lanes at this super target, right? And every time I'm there, I'm looking going, at most, at most, like on Christmas Eve, you're doing like 10 lanes are open, right? Like, why do we have all these lanes? And so there's these times where there's 25 lanes and you're sitting back there waiting because two lanes are open. You're like, this is crazy, right? We hate waiting. This, this actually even sh- changed how we kind of did some stuff with our worship services. Some of you will remember this if you've been coming to the church for a long time. But we used to, when we celebrated communion, we used to actually have communion stations set up in the corners of the room and back there by the pole in different spots. And when it came time to celebrate communion, instead of us passing it out, we would have you get up out of your seat and come forward and get the communion elements and take them back to your seat. And um, we liked that because it was kind of interactive and you had to get up and stretch out and whatever. But, but we ended up realizing that what happened was, as soon as we said, you're now free to get the elements, some people were like, quick, here's my chance. Right? And they got up, and they sprung up, and, and got in line, and then other people got in line, and it was like, instead of communion being this moment where it's like, I'm hearing the voice of God. Oh, dear Lord, what would you have me reflect on and hear? God, I just want to hear your voice. It was like, this is taking a while. I'm in line. Why am I not moving? Like, let's go. Come on, move it already, right? And it was this frustrating experience instead of this worshiping experience. We hate to wait. Now, listen, not all waiting is bad. I've got two sisters-in-law right now who are both pregnant. They're a couple weeks away from delivering, and they're at the point where it's like, come on, let's get this baby out of me. But like a few months ago, like, hey, that's worth the wait, I've had a time when I was on an airplane and uh, you're sitting there on an airplane and and you're wondering why why aren't we going anywhere? What's happening? And they come on and they say, we're actually waiting for the pilot because he was on a different flight and he's gotta get on here, right? And no one at that point was like, let's just go anyway. We don't need him, (laughs) right? Like some waiting's good. Like we'll, we'll go, I'm probably not gonna go up and just fly the plane. Like let's just go ahead and wait for the guy who's spent his whole life training to do that. Like let's do that. So not all waiting is bad. Now this passage that we're gonna look at here in, in uh, Acts chapter 24 is really an interesting kind of look at a good kind of waiting and a bad kind of waiting. We're gonna see the Apostle Paul is gonna be kind of a model, kind of a case study of a good kind of waiting, the kind of waiting that anyone who's a follower of Christ uh, actually should begin to embrace in their life. We're also gonna see a negative example, a bad example of the wrong kind of waiting. We're gonna see that with this, uh, this um, governor type figure named Felix. All right? Now before we dive into that, let me just kind of set the context and make sure that you understand this, especially if you're new with us or haven't been here in a couple weeks or that sort of a thing. So, the Book of Acts is largely telling the story of the of the of Christianity spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And the major figure that's been kind of prominent in the last 10 or 15 or so chapters, has been this guy named the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul originally was a very serious, devout Jewish leader. And he was so serious about his Jewishness that he actually opposed Christianity and uh, oversaw and approved the persecution and even the killing of some Christians. And while he was in the midst of that, uh, God, through Christ, interrupted him, showed up to him. The risen Savior Jesus showed up to him and said, Hey, you're persecuting me. Knock it off. And now I'm going to use you to actually be a champion for my name. And so what Paul's doing throughout this book is he's traveling throughout the Mediterranean rim and he's helping start new churches, new congregations. He's preaching the gospel and he's doing this over and over and over. Well, along the way, he decides to start taking a financial collection because the church in Jerusalem is really suffering. They're going through some difficulty, and so all these other churches pitch in and Paul says I need to now take that offering back to Jerusalem. And so he's had for the last few chapters, he's had his face set on Jerusalem. He knew from the Holy Spirit's telling him that when he got to Jerusalem, he would experience persecution and suffering the kind that he used Used to inflict on others, he's now going to have inflicted on him. And he gets there, and in the last couple chapters, Paul had been kind of standing trial before the Jewish leaders who really, really didn't like him, the people who were just like he used to be. Now, here's the thing you got to understand is the the Jewish leaders really had pretty limited authority. These Jewish religious leaders had kind of authority over the religious side of how people kind of conducted their life. But if they wanted to actually imprison somebody or if they wanted to even execute somebody, which is what they want to do, they actually take a vow that they're going to do whatever they can to get Paul killed. In order to do that, they actually had to lean on the Roman government because Israel was occupied by Rome at that time, and so that's where this guy Felix comes in. And so, in chapter 24, we didn't read this whole part, but this is uh, this is essentially what happens. If you look at the beginning of Acts chapter 24, is uh, Paul has now been brought before this guy Felix, this Roman governor, and the religious leaders they state their case. Hey, this guy's a big problem. They call him a plague. They say everywhere he goes, he stirs up trouble. You don't want that kind of unrest and riots and all that sort of stuff, the social disturbance, do you? And then Paul gets up and he says, you know what, this is all overblown. I'm really here because I talk about the resurrection and that drives these guys crazy. This isn't a civil problem. This is a religious discussion. And that's sort of where we pick up in Acts chapter 24, verse 22. Felix is this governor that they're all standing before. And here's what it says there. It says, but Felix... Having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, the way is the the kind of shorthand for Christianity. He actually had an accurate knowledge of Christianity, it says. He put them off, saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. So he goes, ah, I don't really want to deal with this. I don't really want to kind of solve this problem now. Uh, at some other point, I'll, I'll deal with it. Verse 23. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So this is actually pretty gracious of the guy. This guy, Felix, says, you know what? This guy, Paul, he's going to be here in custody for a while. So let's kind of make it. He's sort of under house arrest. People can come visit him. People can... right? This is not Paul down in the deep, dark dungeons of prison. He kind of has some access. People come And visit him. And it says in verse 24: After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith. In Christ Jesus. Now, a couple of things just to understand this story, and this will be important as we go, is to understand some background on Felix. This guy Felix, I mentioned from verse 22, he had a rather accurate knowledge of Christianity. And a lot of scholars think that that came because Felix actually, rather than being born into some sort of royal type family, he was born in more of a commonplace family. So there's a good chance that Felix actually knew sort of common, ordinary people who had become Christians. Maybe that's how he knew about some of this stuff. Well he's ascended into positions of prominence and power and largely he's done that through being ruthless. History says that this guy was brutal, he was vicious, any sort of descent he would just try to squash it as much as he could. He's also corrupt. He was always looking for bribes and taking bribes, and it was even some of that kind of harshness and bribery and things that he did that eventually got him ousted out of power. Now, the other thing that he did, and this this refers to the, the woman mentioned in verse 24, his wife Drusilla. Drusilla at this time was probably 19 years old, is what historians say, and everyone said that she was this ravishing beauty. She was just absolutely gorgeous, and um, she actually, even though she was 19, she'd been married once before. She was married to this other kind of uh, government official type person. And Felix actually managed to seduce her and get her to divorce her husband and come into marriage with him, right? So so that's some of the dynamics that's going on here. And it says in verse 24, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him, right? Paul, I, uh, I kind of want to hear what you have to say again. You got something for me? Paul never gives in. It says, verse 27, When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Paul and Felix are a great case study in the right kind and the wrong kind of waiting. First, the right kind of waiting. This is what we see with Paul. Did you see what it said there in verse 27? When two years had elapsed. Two years. Paul has been in prison. Again, great situation, right? Friends are able to come. He's not in a deep, dark hole, but he's been in custody for two Years. This is a guy who has spent the last few decades of his life here for six months, there for four months, here for a month. At most, he spent about two years in one place, and then he's just kind of keep going. And now here he is in custody, unable to go anywhere or do anything for two years. That's a season of waiting. Now, some of you will remember we talked about this last week. Go in your Bible, if you have your Bible there. Go to Acts 23, go back to verse 11. Acts 23, verse 11. This is the verse we focused on last week when Paul had been kind of caught up in this whole trial situation with the religious leaders. It says there, That following night, the Lord Jesus stood by him And said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. We said that what allowed Paul to keep going was the presence of God and the promises of God. And it was that promise specifically. Here's essentially what what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, Paul, you've been faithful to me. I told you that you were going to preach to Jews and to Gentiles and to kings and to authorities. You've been faithful. You've done everything I've asked you to do. You've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, and now listen up, Paul. You are going to speak about me in in Rome, too. I'm going to get you to Rome. Paul, here's a promise. You're going to get to Rome. No matter what happens, no matter what kind of threats, no matter what kind of accusations, you're getting to Rome. Now, the thing that Jesus didn't include in that promise was what? When. When. And that's really the problem we have, isn't it? We're fine with the promises of God, but we want them now. I I feel alone. I feel discouraged. God, I know that you say you'll be close to the brokenhearted. I know that you say you'll save those who are crushed in spirit, but when? When? Lord, I know that you say you'll complete the work that you began in me, but it feels like it's going really slow. Am I going to see some progress soon? When is this? going to happen? God, I know that you say you're going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. When? When? Jesus promised he'd go to Rome, but he didn't say when. And so Paul is waiting for two years. Now listen, this is key. Waiting is part of trusting God. Some of you are in seasons of waiting right now. You're waiting to get an answer on a diagnosis. You're waiting to see if this new job opportunity comes through, and you've had some initial conversations, but you don't really know where it sits. You're waiting to decide, am I going to move here? Am I going to go there? You're waiting to hear from your kids about, are they going to maybe move back kind of in vicinity? And You're going to get to be near your grandkids, and you're waiting. And you're, so, some of you are in all sorts of seasons of waiting. Listen, waiting is part of trusting God. This summer, Matthew Brasleton, who just led us in music, uh, had a six-week sabbatical where he got to spend some time away, and it's been really neat to hear him talk about what he learned and what he experienced, and he spent a significant amount of time just meditating and thinking on the, the passage in Psalm 62, which talks about waiting on God. And so I asked him the other day, I, I wrote to him and said, hey, would you kind of try to define, based on your experience, how, how would you describe or define waiting on God. And here's what he said. I think this is a great paragraph. Waiting on God, he said, a posture of expectant, quiet dependence. An admission that my efforts are not primary. Rather, God's presence and power are necessary for whatever I need. The opposite of an anxious heart. A heart at rest, trusting in God to provide. Hoping in the future that God alone can bring about through his efforts. Now, Matthew said to me, I wish I'd have known you were going to put this in the sermon because I would have actually like, put more thought into it. Right? So you, you had a semicolon there. That was p- pretty good. Like, <laughs> but, I mean, like to me, if you go, that's just off the top of my head, here's what waiting on God is. That's pretty good, right? It's a posture of expectant quiet dependence. So it's not resignation that goes, yeah, it doesn't matter. God's got it. God's sovereign. I don't care. That's not what it is. There's an expectancy to it, but there's a quiet dependence. You're depending on God because you know my efforts aren't primary. My work here isn't primary. This is God that has to do something. God's presence. God's power. That's what I need. I love what he said there in the middle. The opposite of an anxious heart. Right? Isn't that the problem we have with waiting? All right, I'm sitting there at Target. right? And it just, and, and your physical uh, kind of is, is a sign of the anxious heart, and that's how a lot of us get when we're waiting. God, I need an answer. God, I need your presence. God, where are you? I'm waiting. But waiting on God is, is trusting in God to provide, saying, God, you have the power, you have the resources, you have what I need. Now, here's what I want to tell you. Waiting on God is not just something that Paul had to do, and it's not just something that we have to do. This is something that all people who have been God's people forever have had to do. Waiting on God is part of walking with God. It's part of trusting God. Think about this. Abraham, the father of our faith, waited on God for more than two decades before the promise that he would have a son came to be fulfilled. Joseph waited in prison in a dungeon after his brothers had sold him into slavery, not knowing how long he'd be there or if he'd ever get out, he waited. Moses had this heart. He saw his people, his fellow Israelites in Egypt, being mistreated in their slavery, and he took matters into his own hands and actually killed somebody about it, got found out, and had to run off to the desert where he spent 40 years in the desert waiting before God said, I know you want to help My people, why don't we do it my way instead of yours? David had killed the giant. He'd been anointed that he would be king at some point. And years and years and years passed where he was waiting to be king. It's no surprise then that so much of the Psalms written by David talk about waiting. Here's a few verses. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord he inclined to me and heard my cry. Or Psalm 62, this is what Matthew had meditated on. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. I could go just list so many more psalms written by David that talk about waiting. Because... The people of God who walk with God are also a people who wait for God. Isaiah talks about this over and over. He says that waiting is is what leads to our strength. He says this in Isaiah 40, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen, we often think I gotta be strong. I gotta do it. I gotta be strong. No, no, you need to wait for the Lord. That's how you'll renew your strength. Isaiah talks about it in 26, verse 8. This is a verse that actually we printed on the bulletin when Molly and I got married. This is kind of the, the theme verse for us as we started our life together. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. That's what a, that's what a follower of God wants. God, your name. Your remembrance. This isn't about me. This isn't about me getting what I want right now. God, I'm gonna wait for you. And I love this in Isaiah 64 that God acts for those who wait. Look at what it says. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Listen, we don't wait in vain. We don't wait for nothing. We wait for a God who acts. One of the greatest acts of God, as the people waited for him, was sending his son Jesus into the world. God made flesh in Jesus, and yet what's amazing about Jesus is, do you know how Jesus spent the first 30 years of his earthly ministry? Waiting. Jesus, scholars estimate, was about 33 when he was crucified and dead and buried and raised. Three years of ministry, 30 years of waiting. 90% of his earthly life was waiting. You go, why? For what? I don't know. But if Jesus needed to wait, maybe we do too. And the church, as the church, we're the people who wait. This is the description over and over in the New Testament that we're people waiting on God. Here's what it says in Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, that's Jesus. Jesus has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are people who are waiting for all things to be made new, we're waiting for the appearance again of Jesus, our great and glorious Savior. This is why, as Romans eight describes the groaning that all of creation is experiencing, as we long for all things to be made new. Here is what it says in Romans eight twenty three: and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting. I love that phrase, wait eagerly. Huh. Those words almost seem like they contradict, right? We don't wait passively, we wait eagerly. And that's the season that Paul was in. He was waiting two years, waiting, waiting to go to Rome, waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. Waiting. Are you waiting? Are you waiting for an answer? something you've been confused about, something you've been praying about, something you've sought direction about and, and you haven't gotten any answer, you haven't gotten any direction, you don't know where to go, are you waiting? You're waiting for some sort of change, you're waiting for something in your circumstance to just be different and you're asking, you're praying, you're, you're, you're waiting for something to change. Or right? Some of us, like we're just like, I'm waiting to be able to go outside and not have my face melt. Right? I just, I'm waiting for fall, whatever that looks like here. Some of you are waiting for marriage, or you're waiting for kids, or you're waiting for retirement, or you're waiting for a new job, or you just find yourself in this season of waiting. I'm I'm just waiting for the pain to not hurt so bad. I'm waiting. Listen, waiting for God is part of walking with God. So what do you do when all you can do is wait? Seems like an important question, right? Okay, here's a good, right kind of waiting. I'm in a season of waiting. What do I do when all I can do is wait? I think we see a couple things from Paul here in this passage. The first thing that you see is that he invites his friends into it. Look at verse 23. And Felix gave orders to the centurion that Paul should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. You know what that verse tells us, though, indirectly? Is that Paul had needs. And that he had friends who were willing and able to come meet those needs. And, and get this, Paul did not sit there in the cell and go, no, 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 I'm fine. That's what a lot of us do when we're kind of in this waiting game and we're hurting and we're going, God, where are you? God, show up. And God actually begins to show up through his people, the body of Christ. And we go, no, no, no I'm fine. Don't worry about me. I'm good. Instead, he invites his friends in. Yes, come in. Come minister to me. Come care for me. Come meet my needs. There's a, on your program, on your connection card, on the back side of it is a place to write prayer requests. And uh, those prayer requests go to our pastors and our elders and a faithful prayer team that we have that pray for those things and hold them confidentially. And one of the things that so encourages me is that week after week after week, there's three or four prayer requests that I see that are the same thing every week. It's always praying for these people's salvation or praying for this God to work in this family or praying for this thing to happen with this family that wants this certain thing. And it's just, it's just like clockwork. It's like, Oh, here are the prayer requests. Here it is, here it is, here it is. And then there's others, right? There's a lot of us that pray about a lot of different things. But I know that these three or four things will be there every week. And I love it. You know why? Because it's such a beautiful example of waiting on God. It's saying, I can't do anything about this person's salvation. I can't do anything to make God work in the heart of this family member that I so love. I can't do anything to be able to have kids or to have the future that I'm looking to have. I can't do anything. So God, would you do something? I love that. And, and here's what I love, is that these people are not just praying for it by themselves, But they're actually inviting the church family in to pray with them. They're doing exactly what Paul did. They're saying, Pray for me. Pray with me. Let's pray about this together. Let's wait on God for this together. It's beautiful. And I think about what it must feel like week after week after week to write the same thing on the card. It's got to get old, right? It's got to get discouraging got to be like am I still writing this but but for those of you who do that or for those of you who are going to now start doing that it's an act of faith it's saying I'm waiting on you God it's beautiful what do you do when all you can do is wait you invite friends in and you wait on God together here's the second thing you do is you stay faithful you stay faithful You go, I don't have all the answers, I don't know where all this is going, I don't know everything that I have to do, but I know what God's called me to do, and so I'm going to be faithful to that. That's what you see here in Paul. Paul had been told by Jesus, I want you to go preach the gospel, you're going to preach to Gentiles, you're going to preach to Jews, you're going to preach to kings. And here he is, he's before a government Gentile, a government leader, a king if you will, and every time he gets the opportunity, he just steps to the plate and takes a hard swing. He's just faithful with it, right? Look at this, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about, anyone wanna guess what Paul's gonna talk about? Huh. Faith in Jesus Christ. And how's he do it? Verse 25, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, "Go away from the president. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you." So get this. Right? And then the next verse says, "He kept sending for him because he wanted Paul to give him a bribe." And so you get this idea that for two years Paul's just sort of waiting there. He's like, and I'm a, I have, I used to play baseball, so I kind of just imagine Paul in the on deck circle. On deck circles where the guy who's up next just waits. And I, uh, by the way, I have. One of two recurring dreams I have is I'm always in the on-deck circle and I never get to hit. It's so frustrating. Someday I want to ask the Lord, what did that mean? But in the meantime, I just imagine Paul, he's just waiting there, just waiting for his shot. Now batting, Paul. And he comes up and he takes a hard swing and he goes back to the dugout. And he comes up and he takes a hard swing. Faith in Christ Jesus! and he goes back, and he just keeps swinging, right? And, and it doesn't seem like any of it actually connects, right? It's not like, oh man, you hit a home run this time, Paul. Felix, his whole life changed. Nope, he just took a hard swing, and it didn't connect, but he took another hard swing the next time. He just keeps going. Right? And he keeps talking about faith in Christ Jesus. He's even bold. Right, Verse 25 says he reasoned with him about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Now remember what I told you about Felix. Right? Felix was ruthless. Felix was corrupt. Felix was you know, seducing this woman to become his wife. And so Paul is not like, hey, uh, I, don't know, uh, I don't know exactly what to say to you. He's like, hey, Felix, there's this guy named Jesus. And he is righteous and holy and just and perfect. And it seems to me like you have a problem with self control. You're going to stand before Jesus in a coming judgment. And I know that I'm standing before you in judgment right now, but like you're going to stand before him. You need to put your faith in Jesus he's your only hope, right? I mean, Paul just goes for it. He's faithful. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't sugarcoat it. And it doesn't even seem to work. But he just keeps getting up there and keeps taking a swing and keeps being faithful. What do you do when all you can do is wait? You got to stay faithful with whatever God's invited and called you to do. Now, That resonates obviously with some of you who go, yeah, I'm in this season of waiting and I don't really know what to do and I I guess I need to just wait on God. But there's another type of person probably in the room today where what you've been doing is actually too much waiting. And it's time for you to respond. Some of you have been a little too anxious and, and you need to kind of learn this from Paul and go, hey, all right, go ahead and wait. Go ahead and trust in God. Others of you it's time to respond. It's time to, to quit waiting. And we see that with the example of Felix, the wrong kind of waiting. Think about this. Felix wasted two years with the best mind the Christian church has ever had. What would you give to be able to at any moment have the Apostle Paul come in and teach you? <laughs> Anything. Right, like I have so many questions. And if you don't have questions, you should read the Bible more because you'll have more questions. I mean, I just have so many things I'd love to understand. He had access to this guy for two years. He wasted it. And God seems to have stirred, right, after Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. He had some kind of fear. He had some sort of being alarmed. Like God seemed to be doing something. He even had knowledge. Look at verse 22. It says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, he knew about Christianity more than most people. He was even provoked and stirred by the message of the gospel. And he did nothing. See, the right kind of waiting is Paul's kind of waiting, where you know the Lord and you trust the Lord, but you just are waiting on him to act on your behalf. The wrong kind of waiting is when God has made himself known to you, and God has shown you his grace, and God has offered you his forgiveness, and God has given you his righteousness if you will receive it, and you just wait. This is exactly where some of you are. You've been coming to church. You've even been going to a small group Bible study or a redemption community. You could recount and tell the gospel to me or to anyone else if they asked, and you'd keep coming, and you keep coming, and you keep coming. And I'm glad you keep coming. But, but be warned by Felix. Stop waiting, turn to Christ in faith. There is a coming judgment. There is righteousness and self control and a standard that you can't live up to on your own. What are you waiting for? There's a number of things that keeps Felix waiting. Here's the first one. Why, would, why did Felix wait? What's he waiting for? Well, the first one is convenience. He's waiting because of convenience. You know, he, he has the power at this point to wait. He just doesn't feel like dealing with it right now. Look at verse 25. As Paul reasoned about righteousness and self control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. The New International Version, the New Living Translation, they translate that, When I get an opportunity, they translate it, uh, When I find it convenient. When I find it convenient. He didn't find it convenient. I don't know if I want to deal with this right now. I don't know if I want to be that serious about it. I just want, you know, I'm in my 20s. I just want to live my life. I just want to do what I want to do. You know, I'm in high school, and high school is supposed to be kind of this time when you just do your thing. Like, when I, when I find it convenient, when I think about it later, I'll deal with it, right? This is how a lot of people think. Well, when I get married, then I'll kind of get serious about God. Well, when I have kids, you know, because I want my kids to grow up in a kind of moral structure and framework, and when, I, when that happens, you know, when I get successful in my career and that's kind of established, then I have more time, that's when I'll think about God. When I retire, oh, when I retire, you know, I'll be nearing maybe the end of my life and that, that's kind of the time when I'll, I'll really take this seriously. Will you? Why, why, why would you? When will it ever be convenient to have God rearrange your whole life? Never. You'll, you'll always find a reason that it's not convenient. Stop waiting. Felix also waits because of fear. See that in verse 25? He heard all about this righteousness, the self-control coming judgment. It says Felix was alarmed. Alarmed. This is a word that can be translated frightened or afraid. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message, he says it this way. Felix felt things getting a little too close for comfort. Ooh, this message stings. Righteousness? Self-control? Judgment? You mean I have to answer to someone higher than me and I can't see them? Like, that's unsettling. Right? The call of Christianity, the invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to come and die, to die to yourself, to die to your plans, to die to everything that you used to hold dear and to embrace him. That's alarming. I I can't make it less alarming for you. It is alarming. But stop waiting. There's a third reason that Felix waits. see it in verse 26. It's a love of money. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. Here's the thing about love of money no one thinks they have it. No one thinks, I've never ever had someone go, you know what, Luke, I, could, could we meet? I, I'm really struggling with my love of money. No one ever thinks that. Because everyone thinks they have a, oh, I don't love money too much. I'm fine. Other people, I know other people who love money. All right? so this is a subtle thing. This means you're not even necessarily evil like, like Felix is where he's kind of doing injustice in the name of trying to get money. This could just be, I just love money more than I love God. I love the comfort money brings, I love the influence money brings, I love the the lifestyle that money brings, and I feel like if I was gonna have to trust God, I I at least would have to start giving some of that money away, and God might even rearrange my whole life. I don't know if I want that. This is a searing quote by John Piper. An author and pastor, he says this, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. All good things. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Money is one of God's gifts. You go, I'm not not evil. I'm not sinister. I'm not trying to have money to do all sorts of bad stuff. No, but if you love money more than you love God, It's not poison it's apple pie and it's scarcely recognizable and almost incurable are you really giving up a chance for eternal life with God because you want more money now the fourth reason that Felix waits is social pressure Social pressure, you see it in verse 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. You see, what's on his mind is I gotta just do what looks good to other people. This might cost me politically if I kind of let him go, right? And so he's overrun, he's overruled by how will this look? How will this be perceived? What kind of attitude will people have toward me? That keeps a lot of people from following Jesus. Are you waiting? Don't wait. You have a Savior who has been righteous, who has been self-controlled, who because of his death and his resurrection will stand in the gap for you at the coming judgment. Don't wait. If you go, you know what, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm in difficult circumstances and I'm in pain and I just want to see what God will do, listen, wait. Wait on God. He's faithful. He'll act. But if you're a person who's been coming week after week after week, hearing this, articulating this, knowing this, don't be like Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of Christianity, even at times being alarmed by it and just brushing it aside. Don't wait. Don't wait. Trust him. The answer for both of these groups is trust Jesus. Trust Jesus in your waiting and trust Jesus in your responding. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, the examples it gives us, the challenges it offers us. God, thank you that we have a faithful God who in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our turmoil, invites us to wait for him. And God, I also pray for those who are being prompted now by your spirit. Pray that they would be moved that today would be the day of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Luke.